Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's edition of the Daily Delphi. Today I'm joined by Cambridge Peace House College alumni, uh, Mr. O'Neill, and we are talking Horace. Uh, Mr. O'Neill, how are you? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. It's very good to be to be with you. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm very well, thank you. The pleasure's all mine. So, Horace, could you give us, as obviously it's quite hard to cover a whole lifetime, but as much as you can, could you give us a brief mm. history of Horace? Bit of a biopic. Yeah, uh, so the first thing to say is that he was born uh, in uh, 65 uh, BC. Uh, we know that he spent uh, some time in Athens at the academy as a young man, um, which is probably where he came uh, into contact with um, the Epicurean school of thought, uh, which, as we will see, uh, is a, a thread uh, throughout his poetry. Um, as with a lot of classical authors, uh, you find yourself with Horace getting into a very nice web. And it isn't immediately clear whether we only know things about Horace because they come from his poems, which begs the question, well, to what extent do we know that they're accurate? And you sort of get into this circle. How do we know about this? Because he says so in his poems. Uh, and then we use that information to interpret other poems and it becomes this, as I say, sort of web. Uh, so, yeah, the jury's out as to how much uh, we can read uh, autobiographically. Uh, certainly one other thing that's worth saying is that uh, he did fight uh, in the civil wars. Uh, but on Brutus's side. Uh, but then later uh, switched uh, allegiance uh, to Octavian. Uh, and particularly in some of his later poetry, uh, we find him being very supportive uh, of Augustus. Uh, and so that's a, a little bit about his military career. Uh, in terms of his writings, uh, the main ones uh, are the satires. They're the first things he writes, um, followed by the epodes and the odes. Uh, odes one to three are written in around 23 BC. Uh, and then the fourth book of Odes uh, follows about 10 years later, uh, and you also have uh, the epistles. Uh, so there's a, a wide range of, of writing there over a career of, um, of about 30 years. Interesting. Now, you mentioned um, there briefly his time in the civil wars. And obviously there's another very famous Roman poet who spent a lot of time at least being exposed to the civil wars in Virgil. And so it's only natural that, um, along with the, the plot that naturally beckons it, that we have quite a large feature of war as a theme in the Aeneid, for example. And given his um, exposure to it, there's quite a large scholarly debate over whether it is pro or anti-war, uh, the Aeneid this is. Now, in Horace's poetry, do we have any reflections? You talked about, obviously, the jury's out on whether it is autobiographical or not, but do we have any reflections of that war experience within his poetry? Yes. Uh, so um, I have my edition of the Lerb here in, in front of me, uh, which uh, all classicists know uh, and love. Um, there are um, some odes in particular that uh, reflect on war. 
Um, there's ode uh, one two. Uh, the first line of that ode uh, actually uh, is Yam uh, satis teris nuis at quadirai grandinis misit parter. Uh, so uh, the father has now poured uh, more than enough snow uh, and hail uh, onto the earth. And this sort of, often it, it's images of weather that are used to describe war. Uh, and we see that uh, also in Ode 114, which is a very famous ode. Uh, it's where um, the language of the ship of state comes from. Uh, that we still use uh, today. We still talk about the, the ship of state. Uh, 114, which is that famous uh, ship of state uh, poem, uh, talks about the mast being split uh, by violence. Uh, it talks about the yardarms groaning. And so the idea that, that Rome is this ship that is being beaten and battered by, by the adverse weather. Uh, the other one uh, that I would turn to would be uh, Ode 2-1, uh, which contains uh, lines such as uh, weapons smeared uh, with blood. And um, it's particularly keen to emphasize that this is Roman blood. This is uh, Latino sanguine. Uh, the other one that may be of interest, um, you'll know from the uh, Wilfred Owen poem, uh, Dulce et uh, Decorum Est, uh, Pro Patria Mori, uh, which is a quote directly from Horace. If I'm allowed to, to say this to an English uh, student, um, I don't think uh, Owen quite gets Horace right. Uh, there's that line just before uh, the quote, which is something like uh, the old lie that it is uh, Dulce and, and Decorum uh, to die for one's country. This idea that Horace's line was somehow a glorification of war. Yeah, I'm not convinced that that it is. Um, I think actually the, the image of war we're given is very um, multifaceted. But the, there is the other issue that Horace uh, did change sides in the Civil War. Uh, how much of his earlier history he's keen to, to draw awareness to uh, for that reason um, is doubtful. But yeah, certainly this idea that, that the war is, is personified as different weather that is beating and uh, causing damage to the ship of state that is Rome. Okay, interesting. And there's, But from a personal level, we believe it's almost ambivalent from Horace, which is perhaps due to the fact that he was on the losing side, shall we say. Now, you mentioned earlier also... Um, about his exposure to Epicureanism, potentially in Athens. And this is, as you said, a thread throughout a lot of his poetry. Now, Epicureanism, both Epicureanism and the fact that he was fighting on a Brutus, these are two facets of, or moments within Horace's history, which do not place him within the greatest proximity to Augustus, Octavian's ideals. And yet he becomes incredibly close to the emperor, we learn, and is even uh, beckoned to help him write his letters when he's almost dying, I think Suetonius writes. Now, firstly, could you define Epicureanism for us? And then subsequent to that, could you talk about how he incorporates that in his poetry and perhaps how he got away with it, given his close friendship to the emperor? Yeah, certainly. Uh, so uh, Epicureanism goes back to uh, Epicurus, 
uh, it's largely to do with uh, being freed from pain uh, and being freed uh, from uh, undue anxiety. So the main facet of the, of the school of thought is that anything that, that isn't necessary, that causes us to worry or causes us to be anxious, um, we should remove. Uh, so key things are money, uh, and there are plenty of references to money uh, in, um, in Horace's poetry. Um, I would look at, uh, for example, uh, the first couple of odes in book three, where Horace is very clear uh, that, um, so I'll quote from the, from the English uh, translation at the side here, uh, the one who desires what is enough is not worried by a stormy sea or by the fierce onslaught of Arcturus as he sets or the kid as he rises not by hail lashing his vineyards or by a farm that has broken its promise. Uh, this idea that uh, you, des you desire what is enough, uh, desiderantem quod satis est. And this word satis is seen time and time and again. Yam uh, satis est, it's enough. Uh, desiderantem quod satis est. Uh, this sort of work out what you need, what are the basics uh, the essentials and uh, strive for those, but don't worry about anything else. Of course, the other famous uh, Roman uh, Epicurean poet is uh, Lucretius, uh, also writing in the first century BC, uh, before Horace. Um, and Horace is certainly familiar with Lucretius. Uh, there are quotes from Lucretius, there are um, big hints that, that he is familiar with, with that great uh, six book volume, uh, De Rerum Natura. That's certainly something that he is aware of. Uh, again, um, this image of weather comes back, that actually um, you need to remove yourself from the storms of life. Uh, and to go back to the, the ode of the ship of state, almost stand on the shore and look out at the ship that is being tossed about by the weather but you're standing there on the shore uh, unaffected uh, and unperturbed because, um, yeah, you're not worried about them. Uh, you're not anxious uh, because uh, you're calm. It's worth uh, also saying that um, Horace is big uh, on the imagery of rural life. Uh, he has a farm. Uh, he has uh, an estate out in the countryside. Um, and we can almost imagine him sort of looking across at Rome, uh, the city that he describes as, as, as being polluted and busy. And the city isn't the place to have that sort of Epicurean, relaxed, uh, free from anxiety lifestyle. So head for the country. Uh, and Horace writes in his, in his odes uh, to some of his friends, uh, inviting them to come to the countryside to enjoy the carefree, uh, relaxed lifestyle of the country uh, is another place that we see uh, these Epicurean ideas coming in uh, quite clearly. Thank you very much. Now, Horace mentioned the phrase Dolce et decorum est pro mori. Now, Horace is, uh, he's got quite a few phrases which have come into the 
the, vocabulary, the modern vocabulary and sort of taglines like carpe diem, uh, plug the day, and all sorts of things. And I was going to ask your personal thoughts as to why Horace in particular as satirist, as somebody who didn't write um, an epic poem, which was considered the highest form of literature to engage with the, the, the original works of Homer, why Horace has had such a large impact on our, well, has retained that sort of posterity in his phrases in short Latin terms. Uh, part of it is that Horace um, was very much a school uh, author, uh, particularly in the Victorian period, they loved Horace. Uh, and there's something about uh, his sort of uh, worldview that they very much enjoyed and, and would read. Uh, so it's largely because of that. Uh, interestingly, in recent times, uh, Horace scholarship had, had paused for a bit. Um, certainly in the last 20 years, there's been less uh, on Horace, certainly less compared to the great scholarship of, say, the 50s and the 60s, uh, somebody like Frankel, uh, who is still uh, being read uh, and appreciated. Um, but yeah, you're right, there are these sound bites almost that are, are very memorable. Uh, you might also think of something like Nunc est bibendum um, in his, uh, what's called the Cleopatra Ode. Uh, the war is finished, uh, now let's just drink. Uh, lots of references to wine. Um, um, it's something to do as well with uh, the meter. And this is testing me now, how much can I remember from my, my Cambridge days? But we find that these sound bites, these um, carpe diem, nunc est bibendum, fall quite neatly into feet um, in the line, uh, which also, when they were being recited, would, would bring focus to them, would, would make them uh, more memorable. I see, I see. Interesting. I do find it interesting that such sound bites, as you say, have, um, well, not necessarily um, achieved posterity. That's not surprising in terms of the, the calibre of literature. But at the same time, I suppose how, how they can be taken out of context um, yeah. and how Pluck the Day has become Seize the Day um, yeah. in an altogether different um, way of thinking to that Epicureanism. Now, Mr O'Neill, do you have a personal favourite work of his or Ode, and would you like to share it? That's a very good question. Um, and I'm not allowed to say that I like them all, uh, obviously. Uh, the Ship of State one obviously is, is a classic and is very famous and is, is uh, well worth uh, spending time with. Um, I also quite like uh, Ode 213, which I think is quite uh, underrated. Um, and it's quite an odd uh, ode. The Lerb uh, subtitles it in English, A Narrow Escape from Death. Uh, and that's what it's about. Um, Horace is, is complaining about a tree uh, that uh, fell and by which he was almost killed. Uh, we get this lovely Latin phrase, uh, proper funeratus, uh, almost um, enfuneraled. I suppose would be the uh, the non-idiomatic uh, way of translating that into English, um, and it's very interesting. Um, 
we were talking before uh, the podcast about trees. Uh, and trees are things that we find uh, quite a lot uh, in Horace. Uh, and there's this uh, field in scholarship called metapoetics, which, if you like, is going beyond poetry, not just saying, well, what is the, the poem about, uh, but almost seeing how the poet writes about the art of writing poetry in the poems. And so I think when we see the language of trees and forests, uh, that can often be taken as a metaphor for the poetry itself. Uh, and so for a tree to fall and uh, almost kill Horace, it's almost saying that he's been trying to control a tree, he's been trying to prune the verse, he's been trying to neaten it up, been trying to trim it, uh, do a bit of topiary uh, that hasn't worked and it's come down crashing uh, upon him. Uh, and there's that quite nice uh, self-deprecating tone, uh, I think, uh, in that Ode uh, 2.13. Uh, the other one I would mention would be Ode uh, 3.30, uh, which I mentioned earlier that uh, the fourth book of Odes uh, is in many ways an afterthought. Uh, and Horace gives us a reason for that afterthought uh, in Ode 4.6 which is that he's finished his odes. Ode 3.30 is the last one. Uh, Augustus then invites him to do this uh, poem called the Carmen Saeculara, uh, the opening poem at um, the secular uh, festival in Rome. Uh, and he does this performance uh, and everybody likes it. And he thinks, hmm, I could write another book of these odes. I'm quite good at it and being invited by the emperor. Uh, has given me new confidence. Uh, and you do see that new confidence uh, in book four, uh, something like 4-6, uh, which incidentally uh, is the only uh, ode uh, to mention Horace's name. Uh, and it's sort of saying that uh, the people who sang this Carmen Saeculara uh, would pass on the story of Horace and, and that they sang this piece to their children and grandchildren and, and will tell everybody about Horace and his name will be immortal. Uh, but that's book four, the sort of afterthought. Uh, so if you like, 3.30 is originally designed to be the last ode in the collection. And I think it's wonderful. Uh, the first line, um, ex egi monumentum ira perennius. Um, I have completed uh, a monument made of bronze um, that is going to last uh, forever, uh, more lasting than bronze, more lofty than the regal structure of the pyramids, uh, one which neither corroding rain uh, nor the north wind uh, can ever destroy. And if we think back to the ship of state to 114, Rome itself is, being, is in danger of being damaged by the storms. But Horace, as a poet, uh, and as a talent, and as um, his corpus, um, are everlasting and, and um, yeah, will we'll spread from generation to generation. Uh, so it's quite a, 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 it makes some big claims, 330. Uh, but I think it's, it's a very fitting uh, conclusion to, um, as I say, what was designed to be 
uh, the length of the odes. And I know you'll have more questions, but uh, 3.30, um, I say, is the concluding poem. Uh, it's also worth just casting an eye back to the first poem in the collection, 1.1. Uh, Horace is very conscious that he is writing within the Greek tradition, that this sort of lyric poetry is very much a Greek thing. His first nine odes in the collection are all written in different classical Greek lyric meters. It's his sort of showing off at the beginning of his collection. Uh, and that's his aim, really. Uh, his first letter, his first ode that is addressed uh, to Mycenas um, has this uh, phrase, uh, quod si me lyricis vartibus inseres, sublimi feriam sedire vertici. Um, if you, Mycenas, um, also the author, uh, choose to rank me among the lyric bards of Greece, whose meters I'm now going to emulate in the first nine poems, uh, I shall soar aloft and strike the stars with my head, uh, is the Loeb translation. And then in 330, uh, he has built a bronze tower taller than the pyramids that is indeed doing just that, striking the stars. And so that I like the fact that there's this... Um, this big circle, everything is, is very cyclical. Uh, yeah, that hasn't really answered what my favourite is, but hopefully there are a few there that you can go away and look at. Definitely. Definitely. Um, it's, it's interesting because I think that kind of abides something very, uh, something that the average Roman author was very, well, not the average, but the best Roman authors, poets were concerned with, which is, as we mentioned earlier, posterity. Uh, last words of Ovid's Metamorphoses, I live, this idea of um, ensuring immortality through work that is written down as opposed to a monument, something that is transient as is, you know, epitomized in that classic Shelley poem, Ozymandias. Mm. And well, I think, I think it's, it's interesting that it was such a large concern for so many different poets at the time. Now, we did mention in passing the Greek influence. Would you like to return to that? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I mentioned these first nine uh, odes that are in um, the Greek uh, canonical meters, and he wants to be uh, counted among these great lyric uh, poets. And I shall just find the Latin here. Uh, he says um, elsewhere in his corpus, uh, Princeps um, Iolios Carmen ad Italum deduxisi modos, uh, meaning I was the first uh, to bring to bring these uh, yeah these lesbian uh, meters to Roman verse. Uh, that is uh, the poetry of Lesbos. Uh, so we're thinking here of lyric poetry. Yeah, Horace is very, um, very conscious that he's merging the two traditions. Uh, writing about, um, the other thing that is interesting is, is uh, his references to local geography. There's the Fons Bandusiae, there's uh, his farm and country estate. Uh, there are all these Roman and local uh, vintages of wine. 
that keep uh, being mentioned. So in many ways, he's trying to put Rome and his local surroundings on the map. So in that sense, it's a very uh, Rome-centric uh, corpus. Uh, but at the same time, with Greek meters, uh, with Greek uh, philosophy, with his uh, Epicurean ideas coming in there. So it is very much a, a fusion um, of Greek and Roman. Marvellous. And is there any direct allusion or quotation perhaps to poets like Sappho and the, the ancients that he calls back to? Uh, well, Sappho is, of course, um, included uh, in this um reference to the verses of Lesbos. The other allusions that are made are um, to Callimachus. There are a few um, references to Callimachus uh, in, in the Odes. Uh, Callimachus is famed uh, for this sort of taking the, the, um, the narrow path and the light way. Uh, at the end of book two of the Odes, uh, this very exciting ode where uh, Horace uh, is turned uh, into a swan and this language of um, uh, non uh, usitata nec tenui ferra pena biformis uh, per liquidum aetera vates uh, neque interis morabor longius uh, invidiaque maior ubis relinquam etc uh, etc the Lerb translation has, on no common or flimsy wing shall I be borne aloft through the clear air, a poet of double shape. I shall remain no longer on earth, but shall leave the cities of men uh, superior uh, to envy. Uh, and then goes on to describe how he turns into this white bird with uh, smooth feathers. And th this is uh, very much uh, Calimachean language and a Roman reader would have very much been able to see that. So yeah, there's a lot of entering into dialogue with with these um, Greek lyric poets. As I say, particularly the first nine odes where it is uh, the full showcase of the Greek lyric meters. I see. Interesting. And it, it is something, again, we talk about posterity, there is also this constant competition um, between um, the Roman poets and the, their Greek predecessors, where they attempt to not necessarily one-up, but at least pay homage in the process of um, mm -hmm. alluding to their work. Although like, in this case, you have uh, 400 years between gosh. the Greek poets and Taurus. Mm -hmm. uh, so his desire to be incorporated into that into that group is is um, all the more interesting. The other thing you just mentioned there that I, I would pick up on uh, is competition with other poets. We think that Horace and Virgil did uh, meet, did know each other, and you get this uh, this ode uh, in Ode One Three uh, that is uh, interpreted in in different ways. On the surface, it's a nice poem. Uh, it's saying, saying to Venus, my friend Virgil is about to go on a voyage. Uh, keep him safe. There are all sorts of ways of, of interpreting this. Is it a way of saying, Virgil, go away, sail off, write about voyages? Uh, whereas 
leave the lyric to me? Or is it a direct reference to competition and the competition sailing off? And Horace is good at these sort of, um, one of these classic sort of, I'm not going to write about epic material. I'm not going to write about battles. I'm not going to write about these great heroes of the past. Um, I'm not going to write about uh, these wars. Uh, I'm not going to write about all these brave deeds. Um, I'm just going to write about lyric. But actually, in the course of the poem, what has he done? Talked about everything uh, that he wasn't going to talk about. So, yeah, there's certainly competition going on there. Friendly rivalry, we might say. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. And what's interesting also is that perhaps in the sound bites that we mentioned earlier, he has achieved the longevity that some of the other poets who he himself is paying homage to have not. Mm. Well, thank you very much. It's been a nice pleasure to talk about Horace. Um, the last few uh, fun questions before the end of the podcast. Do you have a favourite Athenian tragedy? That's a very tough question. Um, and I'll tell you why it's a tough question. Uh, that uh, my classical studies have been very Latin focused, largely because um, my degree was a combination of modern languages and classics. Uh, so sadly, all the delights of, uh, a lot of the delights of the Greek uh, corpus, um, I haven't got to study uh, as fully uh, as I might have liked. Uh, but Greek tragedies, uh, it's got to be uh, Medea, I think, a classic. I saw it performed uh, while I was in sixth form, actually. The, it was performed at the, the Durham Gala. Yeah, and I'm a, a big opera fan as well. Uh, so um, any tragedy that uh, Richard Strauss uh, got his hands on, fine by me. <laughs> fine choice. Do you have a favourite operatic? adaptation then? Uh, probably Electra. Electra is very, very good. Marvellous. Well, thank you very much. I will certainly have to find Electra. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. O'Neill. It has been an absolute pleasure discussing all things Horace, and I'm sure the listeners will enjoy. And I suppose for, for now, that's goodbye. Thank you for being. Goodbye. Thank you very much.